evening, church family. Good to see you this evening. I appreciate the, uh, the song service tonight. It's blessed my heart. I enjoyed hearing the girls sing a special. Our children recorded that in one of our albums, one of their musical CDs. So it brought back some memories as you sang that. And then also, what an appropriate song to sing. Uh, Brother Caleb chose uh, to close out the song service before I preach because last night, that is exactly what we were looking at. How to deal with trials and tribulations and the proper response that a believer ought to have. Amen? You know who wrote that song we just sang? Ron Hamilton. If you don't know the background, Brother Ron Hamilton was, from what I understand, heading to Bible college. He had some ministerial plans, and along the way found out he had cancer in both eyes. Ended up going through some incredible surgeries, lost one eye completely, lost, uh, lost it completely. And many would be tempted to say, what a tragedy. But out of that incredible tragedy was born an incredible ministry. We know him as Patch the Pirate. You know, and we are so short-sighted in, in what occurs in our lives. Many times we're so quick to complain where God has a plan, and he always does have a plan for you and for me. Man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord always directs our steps. Amen? It may not seem good, but it's for our good. You catch the chorus? Talks about being purged, pruned. Never feels good. You know what I'm saying? But it bring forth, brings forth fruit, and that's our Father's will. You know, your Heavenly Father's will is not your happiness. He wants you to be conformed to the image of his Son. Amen? It's going to take trials and tribulations along the way to go ahead and bring us to that point. So thank you, Brother Caleb. That blessed my heart. It's dear to my heart. My mentor, that was the song my children sang uh, for his family uh, after he went home was the Patch the Pirate song uh, that we just sang. What a blessing. I shall come forth as gold. Take your Bibles tonight. Take your Bibles. Oh, my wife is flagging me real quickly. Who needs a handout or a pen? Raise your hand very quickly. Handout or a pen. And as Deb is bringing those over to you, I want to say thank you for your hospitality. Thank you to Sister Marge for a wonderful time. She took my wife out, and I'll probably read about their time on the town in the papers tomorrow. Um, but uh, thank you so much for that. And then uh, a real blessing. She really enjoyed the time, sis. And then also, Pastor and Sister Shaw, thank you for a wonderful meal tonight, fellowship. We had a little urchin with us briefly there as well. We just want to say thank you. We enjoyed the time and appreciate your hospitality and the church family's hospitality to us. James chapter 2. Let's go there. The book of James. James chapter 2. And once you find your place, if you're able to stand comfortably, stand with me. And I know that you have it. James chapter 2. The book of James deals with authentic Christianity. The central theme throughout the book is simply the challenge to grow up. Notice here in James chapter 2 and verse number 1 begins by saying this, My brethren, notice he's talking to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers here. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. And then he illustrates, for if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place, 
Say to the poor, stand thou there or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and have become the judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Last night we considered a thought from the book of James in chapter 1, and you and I were challenge to grow up in our attitude toward trials and tribulation. Tonight here in chapter 2, the Spirit of God through James challenges every one of us that names the name of Christ to grow up in our attitude toward what we treasure and what we value, oftentimes seen in our treatment of people. I'm going to say that again. In James chapter 2, clearly the Lord is challenging his children to grow up in their attitude toward what they treasure and what they truly value, oftentimes made manifest by our treatment of people. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight. The wonderful privilege again to be in your house and with your people. Lord, thank you for the honor we have to call you our Father. We praise you for the day that you showed us who we were, and Father, we fled for refuge at the finished work of Calvary. We thank you for the day our faith found a resting place in Jesus Christ alone. Thank you for your salvation. Now, Lord, as your people, though we're heaven-bound, we travel upon this earth, we pray tonight that you would challenge us concerning Father, what it is we treasure and what we value, often revealed by our treatment of people. Lord, may tonight we not be hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Father, by your grace, help us to be doers of thy word. May you have your will and way in every heart. And if there's one among us who's yet poor spiritually, dead in trespasses and sins, Father, may they trade their sin tonight for your son. May they become rich beyond compare. May they be saved. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> James deals with authentic Christianity. The central theme throughout the book of James, if you'll remember, as I just mentioned and mentioned last night, is the challenge for believers to grow up. I want to pause just for a moment as we come into this second thought and remind you that growth is expected in living things. Amen? If something's alive, its natural tendency is to grow. Amen? I mentioned last night we have 10 grandchildren, 11th on the way, and the oldest is only seven. And of course, when we have a family reunion, I feel very young for a moment, and then I feel very old as all of that energy literally bounces off the walls of whatever building we're in there with. But 
I'm grateful to know that they're not always going to be that way, man. They're not always going to be children. There's the expectation that they're going to grow up. They're going to mature. And certain attitudes they have right now and certain things and activities they do, throwing fits and getting all upset when it doesn't go their way, I don't expect that from them. I'm not going to expect that from them in 20 years. Now, just as I, as a father and, and now a grandfather, have growth expectations for my children and now my grandchildren, could I just remind you, your Heavenly Father has growth expectations for you as well. When He saved you, He didn't plan to leave you how He found you and where He found you. He wants you to grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord through the sincere milk of His Word. Amen? And so James is just that book. I've often told people, if you really want to get uh, sliced and diced, go to the book of James. James just doesn't pull punches because he's, he's challenging us to grow up, you know. And last night we saw that first area you and I are to grow up in was in our attitude toward trials and tribulation. Look at your little handout. The most important thing we need in the midst of a trial is what? Patience. Say it with me. Patience. You and I are to actually pray for patience. I was told all the time, don't pray for patience because patience worketh tribulation, tribulation worketh patience. So the inference is if you're going to pray for patience, God's going to give you tribulation. But like I said last night, whether you pray for patience or not, you'll always have tribulation. There's no shortage of tribulation today. The shortage is patience. And note in your notes... The most important thing we need in the midst of a trial is patience, and the two reasons why. Number one, because patience allows you to reflect the glory of God to this world. Amen? Amen? And listen, impatient people don't reflect the Savior. Impatient Christians reflect sin and self. Amen? It's patience that goes ahead and lifts up our Savior and lights up the darkness because people say they have something and someone I don't have. Number one, patience allows you to reflect the glory of God to this world. The text was Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. But second of all, and this was important, patience allows God to build your character and your faith. Second Peter in chapter 1, we noted that, that after we get saved, God wants us to add to our faith virtue and then to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance what? Say it, patience and to patience godliness. You and I need to recognize tonight that if all we're ever going to be is impatient Christians, getting all bound up and upset about everything that comes in our life, we'll never become godly. It's a spiritual impossibility. Amen? That's just how important patience is. And so last night we were challenged to grow up in our attitude toward trials and tribulations. But tonight in chapter 2 of the book of James, if you go there with me in verse number 1, you and I are commanded now to grow up in our attitude towards what we treasure and value. And it's oftentimes seen in our treatment of people. Notice, first of all, verse 1, the testimony of Christ. It's a twofold testimony. Look at what's said in verse 1. He says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Notice the testimony of Christ. I put this down. Who exactly is Jesus Christ? 
Well, he's noted in verse 1, the essence of who he is, he's the Lord of glory. Amen? He is the one who is all-powerful and all-preeminent. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9. Look at one Old Testament prophetic reference to who the person of Jesus Christ was and is. Look at what's said in Isaiah 9 in verse number 6. Usually it's only December we read this text. But look at what's said in Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, the, the prophet says. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Hey, the child was born, but the son was given. Why? He's forever. He's eternal. He has no beginning or ending. He's the great I am. Look at this. Who is he? The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Amen? Who is this Jesus Christ? James said he's the Lord of glory. He's the great I am. He's the always existing God. Look with me in the book of Revelation chapter 1 as the Bible closes out. It, it never changes his position and, and his preeminence here. And in Revelation chapter 1, look at what's said about him in verse number 8. You say, well, who is Jesus Christ in Revelation 1.8? He says, I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come. Who? The Almighty. Who is he? James chapter 2 verse 1 just comes right out and says, I'll tell you who he is. He's the Lord of glory. He's the always existing God. He's the one who was and is and which forever shall be the eternal I am, the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth but. But you know, in his earthly ministry, he appeared to be somebody else. Amen? Notice with me, go back to James in chapter 2. Look at again what's said here. He says, my brethren, James 2, 1, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He notes who he is with respect to persons. I just noted this in the notes. You might want to, his preeminence and power are noted in that very first verse. But in this life... In his earthly ministry, he was an individual of poverty. Write that down. We note his preeminence and power in verse 1, but if you look at his entire earthly ministry, you must also note his poverty. And it shouldn't catch you off guard. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this. Let's just go there and let's just read it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse number 9, notice the ministry of Christ is noted here. In 2 Corinthians 8, in verse number 9, says this. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became, what's the word? Poor. Why? that ye through his poverty might be rich. Listen, he's the Lord of glory in all preeminence and power, but during his earthly ministry, his was a life of poverty. He became poor, who was rich, 
He set aside all of the kingdom. He set aside all of his glory. He came down here and became a servant for one purpose. His poverty was given that you might become rich. Think about his earthly ministry, his poverty and his birth. He lands in a manger. He can't even get a hotel room to go ahead and be birthed in as he enters. He's in a manger in a stable in an insignificant little town called Bethlehem. He arrives in poverty in his birth. He continues in poverty in his life. In Matthew 8, 20, he says this, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. His was a life of poverty here on earth. He owned nothing. And even in his death, he was placed in a borrowed tomb. Look at how Isaiah seems to sum him up in Isaiah 53, looking ahead to his earthly ministry. He says this in Isaiah 53. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. Isaiah 53, go there with me. As we consider the Lord's earthly ministry, Isaiah 53 in verse 2 says this, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Isaiah 53, 2. And as a root out of a dry ground... He hath no form nor comeliness, that, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he's despised. He's re rejected of men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, a, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed it not. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 9, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he'd done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Here's the point I want to make. He is the Lord of glory. Amen. But in his earthly ministry, he was a man of perpetual poverty. And what we need to understand about that is this. If anybody would have judged the value of Jesus Christ, Based simply on appearance in his earthly ministry, they would have gotten his value wrong. Now let me say that again. That's a big point. If anybody would have judged the value, how valuable this man was during his earthly ministry, based simply on appearance, they would have gotten his value, wrong. He didn't appear to be a king of all kings. In his earthly ministry, he didn't appear to be the Lord of all, the eternal I am. You with me? And this is what the Lord is saying here. He's saying, do not mix my faith with favoritism. Don't do that. That's how the world operates, but that's not how God's people operate. We see things more deeply. We see things more eternally. We're not to be taken simply with the temporal and the visible. Amen? You're going way too quiet on me here. Okay? Notice something here. We see the testing of the Christian. Look with me. Go back to James chapter 2 and look at what he says here. Verse 1. He says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Look at verse 2. For, here comes the testing of the Christian. For if there come unto your assembly, we could say a to our congregation, to our church service, a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, 
And there coming also a poor man in vile raiment. Notice here, the test begins. Two men enter the congregation. And just like church, you know how it is. People come and people go. I mean, I'm always taken by the fact that as, it, when I pastored, people would come, there would be a visitor, and, and, and then people go, and then there's new faces another week, and then they go, and isn't it interesting, every time somebody comes, we immediately begin to evaluate them without even thinking about it. I, I mean, that's human nature. We try to figure out who they are. We try to figure out their station in life. Well, we evaluate them, and, and, and sometimes we immediately say, oh, that, oh, that's one of them. You with me? So this is what the Lord's saying. It's a church service. Two men come in. One apparently is a man of great significance. He bears a ring. He's dressed in, in which would be authority. And that day was great authority. Uh, we could say he shows up in the Mercedes. You know what I'm saying? He comes out with a three-piece suit. I mean, this is a man of wealth. This is a man of means. He has the appearance of a businessman, uh, very, uh, very achievement-oriented. One appears very significant. And then there's another person that comes in who's a poor man in vile raiment. He appears very insignificant. We could say he looks like the whole homeless person on the street corner. Just imagine with me that, that that happens, and it happens all the time. Amen? People come and people go. You know, it's interesting. The church didn't know their background. You, you understand me? The ch church can't know their background just looking at them. The church didn't know their spiritual status. If one was lost, or one was saved simply by looking at them. You understand that? They, they didn't know their spiritual status. The church did not know their character, who was charactered and who was not. I mean, some mafia bosses look pretty successful, amen, but there's a lot of character flaws there. Are you with me? They didn't know their integrity. They didn't know if they, if they were saved, what their spiritual maturity was. And, and let me add this. They didn't know their struggles or trials or what they had been through in life. You know, Eli did that to Hannah, didn't he? Go back to 1 Samuel. Watch this moment where the man of God, he swings on the pitch and misses it. Notice what's said in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah's going to the temple. She's praying for a son. And notice in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Eli only had the outward to look at, and so he made a judgment. He made an assessment here. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, look at what's said in verse number 13. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, 1 Samuel 1, 13, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, what? Eli thought she had been, what? Drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. You know, go back to James I think what the Lord is setting up here for us to consider as he addresses the believers here in the book of James is oftentimes a challenge to every one of us as well. As people come and people go, 
I could say this as I travel as an evangelist across the nation, and I pastored for years and assistant pastored. So in every station that I've been in in ministry, I am an evaluator. I have that tendency to immediately try to figure you out. I try to evaluate who you are, where you come from, exactly what your status is. And oftentimes I catch myself, I'm not always right because I don't have all the information. Amen? The testing of the Christian were these two men. One looked successful, the other looked like a failure. And notice the tragedy that occurred as they looked at these two men. Look at what it said. He said in verse 2, and just run it through verse 4, For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, Ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? You know what the tragedy of the congregation was? They got it wrong. Write that in there. They got it wrong. They valued one above the other, simply based on what they could see externally. They got it wrong. They, they would have gotten it wrong if it had been the Lord himself because he would have appeared as a man of poverty. They would have gotten it wrong had they not known who he was. Amen? They showed favor towards one over the other. And I wonder just... Could we just kind of bring this to where we live today? Imagine if two visitors showed up. One was a famous sports star. I know we're going to be talking about Bernie Carbo. He's coming in next week. And, and honestly, I, I'm sorry, I did not know who he was. I can honestly say that. You know, my daughters are Yankees fans, so if he's a Boston guy, I guess that was it. You know? <laughs> I know, I know, I made it, brother. That's going to cost you. You throw double in the offering tomorrow night, all right? So... But, you know, I, I didn't know who he was, but I, I, you know what, what perked me about him was the fact he was saved. And that's, to me, what was important. But let's just use an example here. Two famous sport, or two people come in. One's a famous sports star and the other is an unknown beggar. Who would you want to be photographed with? You know what I'm saying? Who would you say, oh man, can I get your photo? I mean, who would you want to be photographed with? The, the, the unknown disheveled beggar or the famous sports star? I would say this. Who would you sit with if you were given the choice? Would you want to go put an arm around the sports star? Or would you say, come on, buddy, and be a, a, a blessing to the unknown beggar? Who would you want to text about? Say, guess who I met today? I remember a couple years ago, I was at Brother Tartaglino's preaching a God and Country rally. They put me on one of the blowtorch radio stations the day or two before. He's a Marine. And I promoted the meeting. You would know his name. I don't remember him now. Yeah. And that morning, as we had our God and Country rally, and I preached, all kinds of folks showed up. We had state senator, we had representatives, we had some 
bikers come in from Boston, Massachusetts because they heard me as a Marine veteran invite them to come and hear me preach. And you know, that morning we had two people make professions of faith, two men. One was the state senator, Connecticut. The other was one of those bikers. I could tell you the state senator's name tonight. I won't say anything, but I could tell you his name. But I can't tell you the name of the biker. Why would that be? Why would I... Uh, a man of God, handling the word of God, dealing with the souls of men and women, boys and girls. Why would, would that be the one I would remember rather than him? And I'm going to tell you why. Because our old nature has this tendency to elevate the worth of someone else over somebody else. But may I remind you, Jesus died for both of them. Amen? Who was the more valuable individual? It was a tie. They were both dirty, rotten, wicked, filthy sinners that needed to be saved by grace. You with me? And yet I caught myself telling everybody about the state senator, and I, I, never even, I never even got the name or could remember the name of that biker. You know, immature Christianity, and I put myself there sometimes, focuses on external, not internal. Amen? Immature Christians will often focus on what's temporal, not what's eternal. Oftentimes, immature Christians, we, we focus on the physical rather than the spiritual. And oftentimes, we have this tendency, because it's where we are in America, we focus on the financial rather than the eternal value of a soul. Here's the thing you need to realize, and write this in, point B. The tragedy of the congregation, they got it wrong, and here's what you need to realize, and I need to accept as well. When we show favoritism, or we elevate a certain type of individual above another without really knowing anything about them other than what we can see externally, here's what you need to realize. We simply reveal our hearts. We're simply revealing our value system. Amen? We know nothing about them but what we can see externally. And when we automatically lift one above the other, we have just revealed not their heart, we've revealed our heart. Because we always elevate what we treasure. We always talk about what we value. I remember hearing the wealthy businessman uh, years ago, early in New York City history, he had a number of uh, chiefs from out west that had come, and he was taking one of the notable Indian chiefs through a tour of Manhattan. And while he was touring Manhattan, the, the chief said, did you hear, did you hear that songbird over in the park? As we, no, he said, I, I didn't even hear that. He said, oh, he sang so prettily, you know, he sang great. And then they kept walking along, and all of a sudden, some loose change fell out of somebody's, somebody's pocket, and that, that businessman, did you, did you hear that? You know? You know what we elevate, what we talk about, what we value, what we put our energy toward? When we do that, all we're doing is revealing our hearts and our value system. Amen? The tragedy of the congregation, they got it wrong. 
They elevated one over the other simply on what they could see externally. Go back to 1 Samuel. Watch this moment in your Bible where a very godly man did just that in 1 Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel chapter 16. And it's Samuel. And notice this moment where the word of God reveals something he almost got wrong. In 1 Samuel in chapter 16 in verse number 6. Look at what's said here in 1 Samuel 16 in verse number 6. The Bible says, and it came to pass. Now Samuel is ready to anoint the next king of Israel. All right? And notice in verse number 6 of 1 Samuel 16, and it came to pass when they were come that he, he looked on Eliab. All the, these, these young men are now lined up. And he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And notice how the Lord responds in verse 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance. Quit looking on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Quit looking at, at, at how tall he is. Notice, because I have refused him. Notice the reason for refusal. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Here we find in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, we see that Samuel was getting ready to anoint what God had rejected. Isn't that amazing? I mean, do you understand? This was a very spiritual man. And he got taken with outward things, and he's ready to anoint the next king of Israel, and he was ready to anoint what God had already rejected. And the question automatically is why? How could he have done that? The answer is simply this, because he was just looking on the outward appearance. He didn't know the heart. You know, could I just say this? And, and write that in. Because he was looking externally, not internally. Write that down. And, and under that little note, I just put this. If he can get it wrong, we can too. Amen? I mean, if Samuel could have gotten it wrong, you can get it wrong. You say, well, how did Samuel finally get it right? He finally got it right by listening to the Word of God. The voice of God. He listened to the word of God. He listened to the voice of God. And he yielded to that and he got it right. And in verse 12, he said, The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And what he was ready to anoint, he, God rejected and God moved him through his word to what he wanted him to anoint. I wrote in my notes, Don't accept what God doesn't want accepted. Amen? Don't do that as a Christian. Don't anoint or put your blessing on what God doesn't want anointed. You say, well, how am I ever going to know what God accepts? How am I ever going to know what God puts his blessing on? You've got to get into the word of God and hear the voice of God. Then you get his value system. Amen? I think in, in our movement, attitudes that have been anointed over the years, the angry fundamentalist. My Bible says speaking the truth in love. Amen? I never bought into the angry fundamentalism, even when I was surrounded by it, and it, it didn't warp me. It was just, it just didn't seem, in balance of Scripture, it didn't seem right. But many times, as independent Baptists, we have anointed a spirit of anger that God had nothing to do with, and he didn't want to put his blessing on it. Amen? 
We sometimes in our movement have, have, have elevated certain men that probably never should have been, that God never wanted elevated. Amen? And God's never been in that business. He elevates his son, not men. But we do. We follow personalities. We begin to go ahead and elevate people. And, and, and you, know, you know how we do that. We play that game. You ever played that game? Somebody said, guess who I met? And they tell you somebody important. So what do you do? You take the bait and you respond. Well, man, you should, you should, you know who I met about two years ago? And you try to one-up each other. And everybody's trying to go ahead and get the more important person that they met. You know what I'm saying? And it actually devolves to this. Well, I met the cousin of a nephew of the uncle of some grandfather. Da, 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 da. Mm. You know, it's a stretch, but you're trying to get a little glory out of that. You know what I'm saying? I've always said, why do we play that game as believers? Because we know at the end of the whole thing, it's not about any single person. It's all about our king. Amen. Why don't we just go ahead and just make it? Next time somebody says, guess who I met the other day? What an opportunity to say, guess who I met? They'll say, who? I met the God of this universe, and he put me in his family. I'm his son. And I'm a joint heir with the king of kings and lord of lords. I belong to a king. Beat that one. I mean, you know, the best they can do is tie you. They can never beat that. They either tie you or they're not there. Amen? And yet we, we chase the personalities. We chase what value system really the world has. And rather than the value system the Lord has. Amen? The tragedy of the congregation, they got it wrong. And initially Samuel got it wrong. He was preparing to anoint what God had rejected. Now here, as we go back to James, look with me in James 2. We find that God elevates three things in James chapter 2. Watch this. In James chapter 2, he elevates three things. In a single verse, he just shows you his value system. This is the value system of our Father, our Heavenly Father. This is the value system of the kingdom, all right? The kingdom of God. Look at what he says in verse 5 of James chapter 2. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? There's God's value system. According to the word of God, he elevates three things. Number one, those who are rich in what? Faith. God elevates those who are rich in faith. The world just elevates those who are rich. Amen? But God elevates those who are rich in faith. That's who we should elevate. Missionaries. That's who we should talk about. You with me? We should elevate the faithful church members. They're just always there. They're in their place. They're just faithful. Those are the people God elevates. How about the elderly prayer warrior? How about the mother that just stayed faithful to be a mom and raise those children as best she could? And, and, and she had all kinds of reasons to blow the marriage, but she stayed put. I'm just you with me? God elevates those who are rich in faith. You know, one of the things we did as a family, we would travel in the motorhome, and it actually became quite a little tradition and habit. Deb would pick a missionary story, and she would read it while we were driving to the next place. And I can still, 
uh, see the lights of the interstate flashing, and Deb had her little light on, and the kids and their jammies were all, were all behind us. And as, as I'm driving along, she's reading a chapter of a missionary story before they go to bed as we're working our way to that next meeting. And, of course, we have six children, so they're all huddled there. And, and if it happened once, it happened a hundred times. She would finish a chapter, and they'd say, oh, please, Mom, please, can you read another chapter? And, and I'd be driving and say, yeah, you read XO, you need to read another chapter. That's from the CEO, read another chapter. And we just, we loved listening to real-life stories. When's the last time you just turned a stupid phone off? Turn the dumb TV off. I know stupid's a bad word, I know. Turn the crazy phone off. Turn the TV off. And just got a good missionary true life story and just read about real things that happened to real people as they chased their God and tried to make a difference in souls. Those are the books God elevates. Those stories, not this junk out there that it's not even true. It's not even real. You with me? God elevates, number one, those who are rich in faith. And faith is just taking God at his word and operating accordingly. Amen? Doesn't matter how you feel. God said, this is what I should do. I should tithe. I should give a tenth, and I should at least be faithful there. And you say, I don't know how I can do it, but God said do it, and he'll never turn me wrong. And so he said he blesses a giver, he curses a thief. Fine, I'll tithe, I'll tithe, I'll, I'll try him. That's faith. That's all faith is, taking God at his word and stepping out. I'm giving you an example. Number one, God elevates those who are rich in faith. The world just elevates those who are rich. Number two, according to verse 5 of James 2, God elevates those who are saved. Notice they're heirs of the kingdom. He elevates those who are saved. The world just elevates the lost. In fact, frankly, the world hates the saved. He seems to note that in verse 6. You've despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you? Do not they draw you before the judgment seat? Do not they blaspheme the worthy name by which you're called? He literally says, hey, this world and all that they call success, most of those successful people, they hate your God. They hate you. Why are you elevating them? God doesn't. And then thirdly, write this one down. The third thing, according to verse 5 here in James 2, is God elevates those who love the Lord. Isn't that good? Notice he says, they're rich in faith, they're heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him. God elevates those who love the Lord. The world just elevates those who love them or love their sin. Amen? Completely different system. Completely different set of values. And here's the thing. I want to close with this tonight. Don't get, notice my thought. Notice what I wrote. Don't get blinded by a broken value system. Today in America, America admires rebellion, mocks righteousness, and elevates the lost. That's the value system of this world we're in. Amen? Literally, this value system, when we leave this facility, when we leave this sanctuary, we go out into the world, you are going out into a place that admires rebellion. 
You're going out into a, a world today that mocks righteousness. Says to girls, you're going to wait till you're married? You are not going to experiment till you're married? Oh, you fuddy-duddy. And they'll mock you for righteousness and obedience to God. That's what the world does. They'll try to shame you into sin. That's the value system out there today. World out there has all the posters of the sports stars. I mean, they're shacking up. Almost every one of them shacking up, living like dogs. They're adulterers. They're adulteresses. Oh, man, they got the, you know, the teenagers got all that junk up there. Man, and we let that system come right in, and we go and accept the value system. Oh, yeah, you know, that guy can shoot a bunch of hoops and make a lot of money. Yeah, he's whoring around all the time, but we'll put him in our teenager's room. I don't get it. I just don't get it. We're becoming respecters of persons, and in doing it, we sin. Because we're buying into a broken value system. It's broken. It's bankrupt. Amen? It was one thing for the world to get this wrong. I'm going to say tonight, it's absolutely unacceptable that we should. Amen? We are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We are operating according to the Word of God. We see things the world cannot see till they get saved. And we do not accept that broken value system. We look deeper than what's external. We allow God to reveal hearts, and we place value on what God values, and we do not place value on what He doesn't value. I say it this way, if you look at the bottom, I remember growing up and my grandmother would watch this show, The Price is Right, Bob Barker. Remember as a kid, there's so much energy in that show. I don't know what the people were hyped up on, but I can still to this day hear them say, the person's name, you are the next contestant on The Price is Right. And, oh, man, the whole place is, and this person who's running out there, yeah, just to, you know, basically make, you know, an idiot of himself. But it was, he was just loving every second of it. And I think to myself, sometimes I feel like, man, I feel like I'm Bob Barker. Would get the price right. Remember how it was? You had to guess what the price of each thing was, the value. You couldn't go over you're allowed to go under. Whoever got closest to it without going over, they got the prices right. And, you know, as we look at the systems that are out there, we look at God's system, and we look at people, you and I need to realize we got to get the price right. We don't want to miss the value of what God values, and we don't want to go ahead and start valuing what the world values. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Whoa, God says, you want to get that price right? You're not saved tonight? You don't know you're going to heaven? Your soul's worth more than everything this world has. Did you ever get that price right? Did you ever see your need for the Savior and realize, I don't care what I've got, what I don't have, my soul needs Jesus Christ. He's of greater value. He's the pearl of great price. He's worth more than anything else this world could ever offer me. Have you ever gotten that one right? But then second of all, go back to James 1, and I want to close with this. We had this incredible little moment that occurred in our ministry about a month ago. But look with me in James chapter 1. 
and verse number 27. It speaks of pure religion. And I'm fascinated. It's about the only place in the Bible you can find a description of pure religion according to what the Lord determines to be pure and without condemnation. Notice what he says in verse 27 of James 1. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. It's two things. Number one, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. And number two, to keep himself unspotted from the world. Well, we understand that second one pretty well, don't we? Brother Prisk, my mentor, used to say this. Christians, they're like ships. Local churches, they're just like ships. Ships are meant to sail. Christians are not meant to be monks sitting in a cave somewhere, get away from the world. No, no, no. Christians are meant to get out into that world where the salt, where the light. He said, Christians are meant to sail. He said, but like a ship, there's no problem with a ship being in the water. The problem is when the water gets in the ship. Christian, you and I are called to go out, do commerce, and deal with souls and light up the darkness. There's no problem going out into the world. The big problem is when the world gets into you. Amen? That's keeping yourself unspotted. Don't let the world's value system become your value system. That's happened in our movement, by the way. That is happening tonight in our movement. The world's value system and what they call successful is becoming our value system. Numbers, popularity, crowd size, all of that. That's what the world says is successful. If that's true, then Noah was a loser. Because all he did, he preached for 120 years and all he got was his family. He'd have never even made the sword of the Lord. But he got put in God's hall of faith. I learned a long time ago, you don't try to control what you can't control. You control what you can control. And I can control if I tell someone how to be saved, but I cannot control if they actually get saved. Here God says, pure religion, you want to know what it is? <laughs> Book of James the first part, and that's the one I want to focus on, is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. You say, what? Who are the fatherless and the widows? I'm going to tell you who they are. They're people that can't do a thing for you. You have to serve them. They'll never be able to serve you. It's the rest home ministry. Amen? I can tell you in all the years I've done a rest home ministry, I don't know if I've ever, maybe once or twice, gotten a tithing member out of a rest home ministry. I don't know if I've ever had that ever occur. I, I'm only guessing. Surely somebody sent something sometime. They're the widow. They're the fatherless. You with me? Spurgeon said, go for the worst. Just go for the worst. We were at Pastor Hastings Church, Richmond, Virginia. He's been there 11 years trying to plant a church. He's a church plant out of Brother Edwards Church, Heritage Baptist. Pastor Edwards was his pastor. And we came through and we preached Memorial Day. It was just, no, it would have been a month ago, whatever it was, we were there. I can't remember what notable. But we preached to Sunday services and stuff. We know Brother, uh, Brother Hastings for a while. And he had a beautiful building he was now in. 
And I said, Brother, how did this happen? We've been praying for years for them to find a building. And, and even, you know, Richmond, Virginia, it's not an easy place to go ahead and get a church planted. And, 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 and then to have a building with zoning and all of that. I mean, they were looking at lots of objects. They were way out of their league. They're two, three million dollar babies. And this is a small congregation of maybe 50 or 60 he said, well, here, he said, Brother Dave, you'll love to hear this story. We, for 11 years, we've done the rest home service. Every week we go and we have the rest home ministry. And he said, really, nobody else wants it. We take it, and we've been doing it for 11 years. He's faithful to head it up himself. He said, a few months ago, we were there, and we were with a little scattering of elderly ladies. We were always there encouraging them. And we mentioned we had a prayer request, and the prayer request was, could you pray with us about a building? We need a building. He said, Brother Dave, when we brought that up, one of the workers was standing off to the side, and she overheard us give that prayer request. She immediately called her pastor because they were in the process of getting ready to sell their building. And she said, you need to come down. And he said, before we could close the service out, her pastor was there. And he said, preacher, I heard you have a need. And maybe you would think this would be the building. It was exactly the building for literally one quarter or one third the cost they thought they would have had to pay. And it is exactly what they needed. I thought to myself, what if he had never exercised pure religion and just went to the people to be a blessing. I can tell you this, he probably would have missed that building. Amen? Y'all with me? I, I'm just saying tonight, let's be careful. We don't let that value system out there determine how we're going to minister in here. God's not a respecter of persons. Don't you be. Don't me. Amen? Jesus died for everybody. So why do we devalue somebody when God said, no, they were, they were valuable enough. I got butchered for them. Amen? And we devalue them. They're not worthy of my time. Well, Jesus thought they were worthy of his life. Do what God calls you to do. God is the one who has to give the increase. Amen? And here's the thing. If we don't have a heart... For those less fortunate than us, how is God going to bless that spirit and that attitude? Amen? Now, if you're sitting here saying, well, I'm one of those less fortunate, I say, you have a problem right now. Amen? Because there you are, gimme, gimme. Why don't you give instead of take all the time? Amen? I'm sorry, this thing cuts both ways. You know, you say, well, I don't have anything. Yeah, right. That's like the man who said, I was all upset because I had no shoes. And then I met that fella who had no feet. There's always somebody that needs help that has less than you have. And the whole thought of this message isn't, well, I need to be sure to be looking up, telling them they ought to take care of me. No, you ought to be looking down and see who you can take care of because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Though he was rich, he became poor. He left it all that you and I, through his poverty, woo, might be made rich. Do not become a respecter of persons. For what you and I treasure and value and our treatment of people reveals our value system.
Amen. Pure religion, undefiled, visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Amen. Let's stand and commit these thoughts tonight. Father, we thank you tonight for this thought. And Lord, as your people, I pray that you would forgive us for oftentimes evaluating the worth of an individual simply on external things, titles, clothes. Father, their, their wallet, their car. Lord, help us as your people. Father, to recognize you died for every one of them. And then, Father, to value what you value. Help us, Lord, tonight to lift up, exalt, and speak about those who are rich in faith, not simply those who are rich. Help us, Father, to lift up and value and, and speak about and desire to be with those who are saved, the heirs of the kingdom. And then, Lord, help us tonight to be totally taken with those who love you and love your Son not simply sin and self. Lord, forgive us tonight for oftentimes allowing a broken system that this nation has to be what defines our hearts, our methods, our ministry. Father, our motivations, our priorities. Lord, help us to be, learn to be givers and not takers. Help us, Lord, to practice pure religion undefiled. We pray in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, music's playing softly, just for a moment.